they had just dedicated their little baby and they had another older brother his name was Johnny and all the way home he cried and then finally after the mother asked him to stop crying for about three different times he, she finally asked like what's the problem why do you keep crying you've been crying ever since you left church and the little boy said that pastor said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home and I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> I trust that you are bringing your children up into the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, if you think about parenting, and now I speak for both mothers and fathers, the, the greatest blessing as a parent is the impact that we can have on our kids. I, I think that's by far the greatest blessing, right? It's not about all the other things that I can do of myself, but to see these children and the impact and the influence I can have on them and that they're like arrows being shot in a particular direction. Again, I trust that you are teaching your children and, and having that influence. I, I looked up the word influence on uh, the dictionary and the word influence means the capacity to have an effect on the character development and behavior of someone. To have the impact and the effect on their character and behavior. I mean, that's parenting. That is parenting. Whether we like it or not, we are having a tremendous impact on our kids. Sometimes negative, sometimes positive, hopefully a lot, a lot more positive than negative. But we have in, in, impact. We uh, affect them. We, we uh, pass on really our values. They get our values, whether we like it or not. And we're passing our values and our motivations onto the next generation through that. That's why one guy said this, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priest. Because really, when it comes to mother and father, and I'm going to say mother and father, will have a greater impact than even, let's say, myself. Not that I'm a priest. We're all priests, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But again, mothers, especially mothers, as I've thought about mothers over the years, yes, dad, ha dad has much influence, and there's many things that my father taught me. But one of the things that a mother seems to have even a greater uh, impact on is that in impact of influence. There's a greater influence, it just seems, that the, the mother had. Maybe it's because many mothers are around their children so much more dad is off work in that type of scenario but again we have to uh, take advantage of it you know Deuteronomy what was read earlier um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this as it as, as it refers to it, like influence it says here O Israel the Lord your God the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart now catch that. In your heart, they have to be in your heart first. And then after they're in your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in, the, in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, all the time. But they're going to catch what's really in your heart. I think sometimes we try to pass on teaching that's really not in our heart first, and they pick up on that. They pick up on that. Um, 
They will ultimately perhaps even reject that. Or if what's in your heart is not truly 100% for the Lord, loving your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if it really isn't all about the Lord, they'll catch that. They'll learn that. So as we're teaching, and as we're influencing, and as we're seeking to impact our kids, I just ask you this question, what are you trying to influence, influence them to? You know, you think about uh, the path of life, and a young child, and by the way, are children born sinners? Yes, they are. Therefore, selfish, self-centered, and really have many paths. Can you see all the paths? Honey, where are the paths? <laughs> now, I have this little... If you think about it, <laughs> this would be a good time to show the path. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you think about influence, and you know, take your child, take your, by the way, this is also for grandchildren, although a parent doesn't have as much influence on a grandchild usually, or for some of you great, how I many of you are great grandparents? Wow. Hey, let's, yes. But where are they going to go? Where are they going to be pointed, right? And we, as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents want to direct them in the right direction, right? We want to have influence. We want to have impact. Tell my wife, I said, that again, I think is the greatest thing in my life right now. I just want to see them, whether it's children, grandchildren, or someday maybe great-grandchildren. That's really what I feel like I'm living for right now. Okay? Now there's other things that are very, very important and I'm calling. And, but you know, boy, go in the right direction. Right? Go in the right direction. Now again, we point them in a lot of different directions, don't we? And the value system is very diverse, even among Christians. Again, many times we try to, we're trying to get them to be successful, but maybe the success is, you know, I want you to be successful in school. I want you to get good grades. I want you to be successful in sports. I want you to be successful in business. I want you to be successful and earn a lot of money. I want you to be a responsible and voting citizen. I don't know what it is. But are those really that important when it's all said and done? No, they're temporal. Now again, I'm not, I'm not dissing. Yes, you need to be responsible, and if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. But the point is that sometimes that's all they're hearing. And we get more excited as far as when they do an earthly, a temporal a goal, they meet a temporal goal, than when, they, when they're actually pursuing the eternal stuff, right? And so what I thought we would do today is, is, is as we think about influence and as we think about motherhood and, and uh, teaching and influencing, we would look at the book of Revelation and just draw some lessons out from the book of Revelation. Now, this is not normally the path we take on Mother's Day, right? Oh, we're going to teach on Revelation? Well, but again, if you think about this, a third of Scripture, they say between a quarter and a third of Scripture is prophecy. And we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, right? So let's go there. Let's just, I mean, it's kind of an odd passage, really, for motherhood. But let's just go and say, listen, what can we learn from the book of Revelation that we need to be passing on to the next generation so that we don't get caught up in the, the present? Because we can very easily get caught up in is what we would say you know we we are in the dot right now the moment of time but we have to live for the line which is eternity 
Well, the, the, the things we're going to be talking about today are the teachings that would need to be uh, inputted into their life for eternity, right? These are the things that really matter. I'm not saying that, you know, some of this other stuff, you, you need to teach it, but that's not the priority. Let's look at the priorities uh, as found out of uh, Revelation. And again, I'm just going to go through, I'm, this is a, the reason I'm doing this is we're already in Revelation. I think it might be good just to pick out some of these big lessons because I'll just kind of go through the book very quickly because we only have a, a little bit of time. But at least it will also help set up in your mind also the further study of Revelation. Okay, so uh, we can get the lessons that we as uh, fathers and also mothers need to be teaching. Hopefully, first of all, as Deuteronomy says, they're in your heart first. <laughs> and then we're able to pass them on to our own kids. Well, let's look at the few lessons we have here. Lesson number one. We need to teach our children that the study of Scripture should change our lives. Okay? That the study of Scripture should change our life. Now, either Scripture or, since we're in Revelation, let's say the study of prophecy. Now you say, well, that's obvious. And again, where would you get that? Well, 2 Timothy. In fact, let me read the second part of that. Again, we, I just quoted for you it's all, that the Word of God is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable. It's useful. What? For teaching or doctrine. Some, some of the passages says doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What he's saying in that second part is this. All of Scripture. When you go to Scripture, it should change your life. We should never go to Scripture just to learn a fact. It should never be that I just learn the Scripture for the Olympian club so I can get the reward. I need to learn the Scripture because it should transform my life. Now that's a, that's a, pass, or that's a, a concept, a, um, a principle that's not always uh, picked up by kids. Sometimes they get into a competitive mode. <laughs> sometimes we're just learning, or sometimes we're doing devotions just to say we had devotions. It should change our life. Again, prophecy was never given for our curiosity, rather for our encouragement and our purity. So as you're a parent, as you're a mother, and as you're teaching your kids Scripture, make sure you always remember and help them to understand. As you learn the Word of God, it should be transforming your life. I liked what uh, the old pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian from about the 40s to about the 80s. And, he, and that was a very famous church in Philadelphia there, 10th Presbyterian. But he would have people come up and, uh, and ask him prophecy questions. And whenever he, they would ask him a prophecy question, he would many times go back and say, have you ever studied 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3? It's a prophecy passage. And if they didn't, he would say, you know what, I want you to go back and I want you to look that up. I want you to read that, think about it, and then come back and ask me your question. <laughs> I've developed now, like, what would you do? <laughs> well, I'm not going to come back to that church. Well, no. He wanted, because this is what the passage, this is part of the passage, what it says. And everyone who has this hope in him, his hope fixed on him, that's the return of Christ, purifies himself. So everyone that has his hope fixed on the return of Jesus Christ, and he's referring to the rapture, purifies himself just as he is pure. What was he trying to prove? What was that pastor, what was that pastor pushing those people to do? He was pushing them in this direction. 
Make sure that when you want to ask a prophecy question, it's going to transform your life. Because if you start getting, if you want to know about the, the return of Jesus Christ, especially specifically the rapture, that should transform your life. It shouldn't just be like, oh, I'm a pre-trib. In other words, you know, I believe Jesus comes back for me before the tribulation. That itself should have impact on my life. It should have impact on our lives. So as we are uh, teaching our kids, help them to understand that the study of prophecy, the study of Scripture, should be changing your life. You should be yearning for the Lord. It should be having an effect on holiness and purity and sensitivity. And we never want to just go, and, and I say that for the book of Revelation, we don't want to get done with the book of Revelation and just say, you know what, man, that was a good study. Learn some things about the Antichrist and that he's probably from Islam. And No, no, no. We have got to make sure that, that uh, it is transforming our life all along the way. So that's the first lesson. How about the second lesson? Make the Lord, and by the way, now we're getting into the actual book. The first one was the overview. Prophecy has, has uh, profit for our own spiritual sanctification, our own personal growth and, and holiness. But now let's just kind of start breaking the book down. I'm just going to take pieces of Revelation, some lessons that I think are eternal. I mean, th these are the things that really matter. Lesson number two, as a parent, as a mother, make the local church a priority. Remember as we've been in Revelation, you know, chapter 1 is the vision of the Lord of the church, and it's in heaven, the vision of the Lord, chapter 1 of Revelation. What is chapter 2 and 3? The seven churches. We've gone through that extensively. We won't say, but you know what? Don't miss the main point. The church is a priority. That's the point. The local church, those are seven local actual churches. Make the local church a priority in your family. Now, how do, we get, how do we teach this? It's pretty simple. Follow me. That's how we teach it, right? In other words, how do you make the local church a priority in, in your kids' lives? You get involved. Don't send them. I mean, again, I, I'm very appreciative of, of families that are not part of our church, and yet they still send their kids, let's say, to the Olympian program. But if you're a part of this church, what do you, you need to be part of the program, right? It's not about you sending your kids to the program. You be a part of it because the modeling will have a tremendous effect. They will know what's important to you. So you teach it by getting involved. And again, you ask, well, what type of church? Well, a church that has godly leadership, where Christ is the center. Again, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this is describing Alfred Allman. Who have members that are pursuing holiness, purity, and active participation in the ministry themselves. A church that is willing to discipline Heretical teaching. Remember we had the, the teaching, the doctrine of Balaam? And I believe it was the uh, Pergamos church. And then they also had that wicked wi uh, uh, woman Jezebel. So they would be willing to discipline heretical teaching and heretical and ungodly behavior. That's the type of church that you want to be involved in. Again, I trust that that's Alfred Allman. But be involved I, I, I'm, I, I'm, as a pastor, as an elder, and I know the elders are, are very concerned, especially with the younger generation. If you're younger and you're just starting to have children, just know that as, as elders, we're concerned for your generation, not you necessarily personally, not necessarily. But the point is, is this. There's a tendency to say, oh, I'm so busy. Yes, I have children, but I'm so busy. I just can't seem to do ministry because I'm so busy. 
It doesn't get any easier. Oh yes, they get out of diapers, but then they start driving cars and everything. I mean, there's always, there's always going to be something, right? I always go back to Jim Patton. Years ago, he used to come here. He's pastor now at Kansas City, I think, Baptist. But he said, you know, he, he said, I always thought that the busiest time of my life was when I first had children. But he, he was dealing with an issue where his parents were uh, growing sickly and having to deal. He said, now I realize I'm more busy now than I've ever been. Okay? In other words, if you're going to do it, do it now. Let, let me give you a question. Are you willing to sacrifice less important activities to be with the people of God? Are you willing to do that? To sacrifice less important activities to be with the people of God? You might immediately say, well, absolutely. But you know what? Look at your life. It's amazing what people give up instead of being at church. I mean, you know, they'll do this, but they will not be with the people of God. And they may do that for week after week, month after month. And if you were to ask the Lord Jesus Christ, he'd say, that other thing you're doing is less priority. Right? Are you willing to do the priorities that the Lord wants? Because if you're going to pass the baton of seeing your kids grow godly, they've got to see it in your own heart, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why Revelation 1-3, through 3, the Lord of the church is saying the priority in his, is, is the church. Is the church. It should be ours. So that's the second lesson. By the way, it's interesting, Revelation. Revelation 1, we see the Lord in heaven, in the vision. Revelation 2 and 3, we're on the earth, the local church. Now let's go to a third lesson. Make the priority of your life and your children's lives the worship of God. And here we see this in Revelation chapters 4 and chapter 5. We go from chapters 2 and 3 on earth, and now look at the first verse in chapter 4. Uh, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now we're back transported to heaven. See, this is John. He's receiving the vision, and uh, he's gone. Actually, in that chronological, chapter 1 is past. Uh, for John, it's, it's present, ver- uh, chapters 2 and 3. And now the rest of the book is future. See, he's just looking into the future. He's, he's allowed to see the vision of the future. But he's being transported to heaven. He's in heaven. And this is what he sees in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this, after the present church age. Now, the reason I'm showing you this is, this is what's important to God, okay? See, we get all these little things important that we think are important on this earth. This is what's important. What do we see? Worship. Worship of the Father. Immediately, verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, and there was worship going on, verse 4, the worship of the 24 elders clothed in white robes. And we find out that this is the worship of God. Now, I'm not going to break this down only specifically because we're going to do that in a couple weeks, but just to say this, this is the worship of the Father. This is the worship. And notice what they say in verse 8. And the four living creatures, these having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him and sits, who sits on the throne. This is the Father, and, and worship him and who lives forever and ever. And, and what you see is worship and worship and more worship continually forever and ever and ever. That's, 
That's what heaven's about, worshiping the Father. We need to teach that on this earth, right? We need to teach that to our kids. We can get so busy we forget that the priority, the ultimate priority of our life is what? Worshiping God. Worshiping God. It will totally transform our lives. It will totally transform our children's lives. Worshiping God. And again, that word holy. It's the only uh, characteristic attribute of God there in verse, four, uh, verse 8. 4, 8. That's uh, an attribute that is repeated three times in one verse, right? I mean, holy, holy, holy. You don't find anywhere else in Scripture like just, 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 or uh, love, love, love of God. This is the quintessential uh, 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 characteristic attribute of, uh, of God the Father, that he is holy. Well, actually, of the Trinity. That he is holy. And again, holy means other. He's the other. He's the transcendent one. He's, he's so much different than all the other uh, parts of his creation. He's the holy one. That's why, that's why it's, it's uh, pegged here. and Actually, also in Isaiah chapter 6. The same thing. You see uh, worship in heaven. What do you see? The, the, um, the angels saying, holy, holy, holy. We need to teach. I think this is, you know, as you look at chapter 4, that's the Father. By the way, in chapter 5, all right, this is the Father. Now, in chapter 5, we have a, an, another person introduced. And I saw him in his right hand, that's God the Father, who sat on the throne, a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth was or under the earth, was able to open it, but <laughs> there is one. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And that is the lamb, verse 6. And that is obviously Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens? Look at this. Those who are the elders, which I think represent the church of verse 8, what do they do? They sing a new song to the Lamb. So there's not only worship to the Father, there's worship to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And he, look at verse 9. He says, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Let me stop right there. That is how a person is saved, right? How is a person saved? When a person realizes their fate before a holy God is condemnation. And yet they realize that Jesus Christ came and died in their place on the cross for their sin. He took their sin on the cross, paid for their sin, and the person receives Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they are forgiven and made part of the family of God. These are Christians because you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Your sacrifice on the cross is why I am saved. It's not because I'm a nice guy. I'm somewhat a nice guy. It's not because I'm unselfish, because actually I am selfish. Not because I'm perfected. I'm not perfected, right? I'm a sinner. Why am I saved? Because I have received the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. Have you done that in your own life? Have you received Christ as your substitute for your sin? He paid for your sin on the cross. And if you receive him, you're completely forgiven. Yes, you are his slave. Yes, you are his servant. Yes, you do follow him. That's, you know, when you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. 
But the reality is that's how salvation happens. Salvation is not by works. It's by grace of what Christ did on your behalf on the cross. Have you ever received him? And, that, and, and the reason I ask that is because if you have, that's why you can worship him. Why? Not only because he is God. See, the same worship that was given to the Father is given to the Son. You know what that says? That he is God as well. The second person of the Trinity. But it's not only that, but because he indeed did die for our sins. He redeemed us to God by, his, by your blood out of every tribe and tongue. And, and so worship of the angels and worship of every creature and the elders. And notice just the very end of verse 14. It says, the living creature said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him. Again, it points directly to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. You would not receive worship if you were not God. So what do we see in heaven going on? Worship of the Father, worship of the Son, worship, worship, worship. Worship is uh, giving worth to God. Like when it says in verse uh, 512, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. See, that's giving worth to, to the Son there. Now, if it's that important in heaven, it needs to be that important to believers on this earth. We need to teach our children to worship God. That's not easy. I'll tell you why. Because the flesh works against that at every step. The flesh says, you're old man, if you're saved one, you're, you're old person, the remnant of what was there before you got saved is still fighting against that thought that really you need to worship God. Just try that. I mean, you know, you can be going along and say, oh, I love Jesus. Well, let's just worship him in prayer. Try to spend a half hour in prayer to the Lord and see how hard that is. Immediately, the flesh works against it. Oh, you're busy. No, you've got things to do. Oh, no, your house needs a little bit more cleaning. And you're like trying to pray and you have all these thoughts going. Why? Because the flesh does not like worshiping God. Okay? The flesh does not. You don't redeem the flesh. The flesh will never be redeemed. The only thing we do with the flesh is leave it behind at the moment of death or resurrection, which is rapture. Just leave it behind. So we have to teach our kids a high view of God and a low view of self, quite honestly. That, yeah, you love yourself. In fact, the problem is you love yourself too much. And as James 3 says this, we have a self-seeking in our hearts. Isn't that good? 3.14. You have a self-seeking in your heart. You're self-seeking. So teach your kids. I'll tell you what, by the way, if you do teach them to worship God, high view of God, low view of yourself, like you're not the center of the universe, He is... <laughs> They will have a lot less problems. They will have a lot less problems. I like what Tozer said. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. <laughs> He's just relieved of them. Why? For he sees at once that these problems have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. Boy, you worship God and your whole life changes because everything's put in perspective. Okay, that's chapters 4 and 5. Let's get to chapter 6. Because with chapter 6 comes the tribulation. And there's something we should learn about the tribulation here. Something that we can teach our, you know, about priorities. Because notice this, the Lamb has the scroll, that's chapter 5. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. And, and now you see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's found in chapter, or verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. 
But this is the point. This is, this is what I want you to get from this. And by the way, the, the uh, uh, tribulation goes from chapter 6 to the end of chapter 18. Most of the book of Revelation is, a, is, is concerning the 70th week of Daniel, the, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the seven years when God judges the earth. Actually, the sun does. But this is the lesson we need to teach our kids. Teach your children that God is, is in control of this earth. It is God who is in control of this earth. It is not the environmentalists that are in control of this earth. It is God who is in control of this earth. In other words, the earth will have its final descent in Revelation chapter 6 and from there on, and it won't start a, a moment before that. We've got to teach our kids, listen, God is in control of this thing. Not the nations, not the presidents, not the dictators. Our God. Psalms 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 135 verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all its deep places. It's the Lord. Therefore, it is wrong. It is wrong in... I say it again, it is wrong to have a humanistic, fatalistic view of the future. Oh, all nervous. Like, you know, if they're going to drop the bomb. Well, they might drop the bomb on us, but I'll tell you what, when it's all said and done in the end of Revelation, the Jews are still standing. I don't know who else is standing, but I know the Jews are still standing. See, it is wrong, I think, sometimes how we fall into some of this stuff. Our sovereign God is in full control of all aspects of this universe. Or to say it this way, there is not one atom in rebellion without his permission. <laughs> I love that. That's a quote, but that's great. There is not one atom that is in rebellion without his permission. Oh, there's a lot of rebellious atoms out there, but they're all by his permission. Right? Amen? It is. It's true. So we've got to be careful. In fact, let me just say a word on this whole creation environmentalism. Because I think that's from, that is directly from Satan. I just want you to know that. It's not a political statement. That is a reality statement. <clears throat> I say it for this reason. God created the earth. Adam sinned. Now, very important question. Who cursed this earth? Was it because of Adam's sin or was it because of God's judgment on Adam's sin? God's judgment. God is the one that cursed the earth. Okay? So, when you know, we get into these conversations, you hear all this stuff on the... In the on the news and stuff. No, no. We are living on, a, on an earth that is cursed by God. Now, we have to be stewards, I understand. Okay? But again, we've got to get away from this idea that our earth is a fragile ecosystem that is billions of years old that was created by random chance. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. It is ungodly. It is a strong, robust system held together by God himself. That is what this earth. And therefore, we know the end of the story. Now, just go to chapter... Okay, the way it lays out is there's seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments. They get increasingly worse, okay? And they all fall off each other. In other words, this, the seventh seal it contains the trumpets and the seventh trumpet contains the bowl judgment, the vials. But just look at how, how God judges this earth. Go to chapter 8. These are the trumpets. But just look at some of the verses. I mean... This is God. This is who holds this earth together. This is who holds this disposable earth together. That's all we are. This is a disposable earth. 
Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire fowl mingled with blood, and they were thrown into the earth, and a third of the trees were burned. Now, a third of the trees. I'm not talking a third of the trees off an acre. I'm talking a third of the trees. Wow! Boy, the environmentalists would get upset with that one. I know some of you are. I am not trying to take, I'm not trying to goad you if you are an environmentalist. I am just telling you that is from Satan. I know that sounds strong. And I thought it was supposed to be all love and uh, sweetness. This is Mother's Day. Well, you're supposed to be teaching your kids something. Okay? <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> but look at verse 8. And a third of the sea became blood. And look at verse 9 or 10. Like a torch, and it fell a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. And I mean, wormwood and death and destruction because this is God's earth. Now, the reason I say that it's from Satan is, remember what Satan is, the father of lies, and he's a murderer from the beginning. And they say, they estimate, because of the global warming efforts, the global warming efforts will kill between 20 and 50 million people in the next couple of decades. And you say, how? Well, think about what that does. It makes prices of energy higher. It leaves people without the resources. It takes food such as corn and burns it for our own pleasure. Now think about what that does to the person. They say a third of the world does not even have electricity. Think about if our lights went out right now and they weren't coming back on again. We would be panicked, right? It's all about that little electricity. What is it, Ron? Go down AC, right? You know, everything runs off of that. Think about not having electricity. And yet we are making it harder and harder for the poor and the destitute to even survive. On top of that, we put all these restrictions and then they die of starvation, they die of disease. See, I won't get into only to say this, the DDT, DDT, it's been proven it doesn't hurt. And yet because of DDT, malaria, millions have died. Now what am I saying? The world system is headed by whom? Satan, the god of lies, the father of lies, and the, the, the one who causes death. Or, I mean, the, the one, the, the murderer from the beginning. Well, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I'm not trying to give you a, a... This is a cursed planet. This is a disposable planet. And this is what I want you to teach your kids. Okay, Teach your kids to be a steward of this earth. I agree with that. But make sure you remember that people are first, not the planet. Like that, oh, I got this one, and you get all over. There's this little fish. And because of this little minnow in California, they've closed down 800,000 acres of water area. And like the one guy said, this is insanity, because 800,000 families cannot have this water. They're going through a drought. You know why they're going through a drought? Because they're trying to protect this little minnow, and the water that they used to put into this big basin just goes to the ocean right now. You know what I say about that? Use the minnows for fishing. <laughs> there's only like four buckets. They say of all the minnows, there's only like four buckets of them. I mean, I keep put all the minnows that they're concerned about. I always think of this. If, you're so, if you, think of, you think evolution is okay, then just don't worry about it. Use them up, they'll, they'll evolve again. Right? I mean, I'm not saying it. All I'm saying is they don't. 
No, no, there's a bigger agenda here. Now, I'm not trying to, I'm not saying this political. I'm saying if you fall into this, you know what you're doing? You're saying that people are less important than the earth. We should be caring for those people who are destitute. The people in Africa who are starving because we're burning their corn. Isn't that sad? Well, at least we got ours. We got to be careful. Teach our kids to be selfless in that. Number five, boy, am I, I'm running out of time. I got about five minutes. Let me rip through these. Teach your children that God is faithful. Look at chapter seven. We're, I just showed you eight. Look at seven. Oh, all of a sudden we find some people here. 144,000 Jews. Where'd they come from? Anytime recent, have you ever met a Hittite, Jebusite, Amorite? They're gone, right? They're gone. At the end of this age, there's still the Jews standing. Now, so teach them, teach your children that God is faithful to his promises. As soon as you read that in verses 5 to 8, and 144,000, and 12,000 from each tribe, and they named the tribe Judah and Reuben and Gad and so forth, you have got to go back to Genesis chapter 12. That's the Abrahamic promise that God gave to Abraham when he said, get out of your country. And then he says this, I will, I'm going to show you a new country. I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as every time I go to Revelation 7, it's like, yep, God is faithful. Because the Jew is still there. By the way, they're there for a reason. I mean, they're there because he's going to use them through the tribulation. They're there because they're going to ultimately, the, the last Jews standing at the very end of the tribulation will turn to him whom they had pierced, Zechariah 14. But you know why they were preserved? Because they were hated. That's why. That's why they were preserved. They were never allowed to get involved with the other groups of people groups throughout the centuries. They were always had those programs. Is that how you say it? Programs? You know, persecution against the Jew. And you know, when I was thinking about that, I thought, you know what? Isn't that how God does it to the Christian as well? The world hates you. And you know what? Even though that hurts, that's actually a blessing. Because they don't allow us to get involved in their stuff. We'd have to go over to their side. No, you know, it's okay. I, I, I don't mind being hated in that sense, right? Because it keeps me pure. It keeps you pure. But teach your kids that God is faithful to his promises. That's what Revelation teaches. He says that he's going to capture a group of Israelites that will truly be for, for him. And in the end, you know what? That's the new covenant. He, he, gives, the, he gives the stony-hearted Jews a heart of flesh, one that can respond to him. God is faithful. How about lesson six? Teach your children that God is very gracious. Go just to the next verse in verse nine. Revelation 7, 9. And these, after these things, after I saw the... 144,000, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and people, tongue. I mean, just a multitude. Multitude. And what are they doing? They're praising God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And the angels stood in verse 11 around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell down. And what did they do? Worship. <laughs> Goes back to our previous lesson. Worship. 
But then someone says, well, who are these? Who is this multitude? Who's all nations, tribes? Look at verse 14. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Teach your children that God is very gracious even in the midst of the greatest tribulation this world has ever seen, there is going to be a multitude that gets saved. I love that. God is a gracious God. He is a saving God. He wants to save. And with unparalleled judgment comes a time of unparalleled grace for salvation. See, we think sometimes, oh, you know, people are dying in carnage and, you know, darkness and burning no, no, and there's going to be thousands and thousands and millions and millions coming to God because He is gracious. Let me give you a seventh lesson. Teach your children, again, thinking about all this trouble and, and, and we're still kind of in the book of, uh, I mean, in the, the tribulation part. Teach your children that trials and suffering and hardship ought to draw you to God and not drive you away from Him. See, pain should work for our benefit. Pain should work for our benefit. We need to teach our kids that pain, God allows pain for a reason, for a purpose. Isn't that a good lesson to learn? That, that pain is for a purpose. You say, well, what is the purpose? It, it makes us wiser, it humbles us, it piques our discernment. If you go to chapter 9, again, this is in the midst of the tribulation. And there's an interesting word that's being used twice. In fact, we're going to close with this. I can see I'm out of time. Other than just mentioning those other two quickly. Pain. The word is repentance. We saw the word used, I think, five or six times with the seven churches. Change your direction. Repent. And I will forget. That was the basic message of the seven churches, chapters 2 to 3. Here, people are, are, there's a lot of pain going on, a lot of death, a lot of carnage, a lot of destruction. Go to verse 20, 920. 9.20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not. And they did not repent of their murders and their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Go to chapter 16, verse 9. It's just interesting. Godly people go through pain and they learn the lesson God wants for them. Ungodly people go through pain and they reject God and continue down the path of their ungodliness. Chapter 16, verse 9. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. I mean, they knew He's the one that has the power over the plagues. But they blasphemed Him, and they did not repent or give Him glory. Verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because their, of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now, what am I trying to say? I'm saying this. Teach your children that when God allows pain in your life, especially if it's pain because of your own sin, learn to repent. 
what, what does the ungodly do? I'm not going to go there. And they just kick in their heels. But what does a godly person do? I'll hear. That's the chasing of the Lord. I will listen. I will go in a different direction. Because pain to the godly makes you wiser. Pain to the godly humbles you. It gives you greater discernment. That's why the psalmist said this, it is good that I have been afflicted. What do you mean it's been good that you've been afflicted? How does that end, Charlie Dybert? That you might learn, that I might learn your statutes. This is one of Charlie's favorite verses. He told me that about ten times, I think, when you were studying that. The point is, is the wise man receives the infliction from God and says, Lord, I will learn. I will learn. So it creates humility and instruction and usefulness. In fact, A.W. Tozer said it this way, it is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly until he has, hurt, he has hurt him deeply. What do you mean? Because that's the humbling process where you realize that God is God and, God is God and you are not. Right? And then you are able to be used by God. That's the lesson. See, that's the lesson. One of the major lessons that come out of tribulation. Oh, there's going to be... God is gracious. Thousands and millions will repent. Change direction. Get saved. Chapter 7, 9 through the end. But then they're the ungodly, and they will not change no matter what. Teach your children to be sensitive to God's Spirit. Teach them that when God says, go in this direction, they will listen. Isn't that a good lesson to teach your kids? Teach them to learn it the first time, because you can maybe even give an illustration. Listen, kids, if you don't learn it the first time, he will send this around again to you. And it might even be 20 years from now. And you've had to learn it for like 25 times and you're still not learning it. Now learn it the first time. Teach your children that every wrong will be punished and every right will be rewarded and that there is a better life to come. Or to say it this way, get eternity in its rightful place. Because God has also set eternity in their hearts. Teach them eternity. By the way, the dog doesn't have any idea of eternity. Your cat has no idea of eternity. But even your little one starts to ask questions. What's going to happen? He said it. Why? Because, because setting eternity in their heart drives them, not just about their eternity. This is the most important part of it. It drives them to the one who can answer the question, which is God himself. See, setting eternity in our hearts means that we are driven to the person who knows my eternity, that's God himself, and I want to get to know him better, and we are ultimately, we, we've just gone full circle, we worship him, right? Get your kids to pursue God, that's what I'm trying to say. The pursuit of God is the ultimate priority, to know him, to love him, and then to be able to worship him. You can't, know, you can't worship a God you do not know. So you've got to know him, and love them, and then you can worship. And you have the great opportunity right now to stand as we worship him.